This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Many of us are already planning our New Year's resolutions, but let's face it, they rarely stick. Well, Peloton's got a gift for you. Get up to $200 off accessories like non-slip grip dumbbells, cycling shoes, heart rate monitors, and more with the purchase of a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Don't wait. Get this offer before it ends on December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com. All access memberships separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Hi again, and welcome back. I'm glad you could join us. The repairs from our little incident earlier this month are almost done, and here you are. Got a question about tomorrow? Well, you are in the right place. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood futurology shop, where you can get the answers to tomorrow's questions today. On today's trip to and from the future, we are considering questions of surveillance and friendship. So this is an emailed in question. Elia writes in the following question. He says, a lot of my friends at this point have some kind of smart home assistant, Google, Alexa, etc. Often they're hidden in the house. So I don't even know that they're listening until they say, hey, Alexa, play some music or something like that. Personally, I hate the idea of being surveilled constantly by these devices, and I really don't want to normalize them. I've been tempted to ask my friends to turn their smart home systems off when I visit. Is that weird? Is it okay to ask your friends to turn off their surveillance devices when you come over? I love this question because I actually have the same one. I would love to know the answer. And to grapple with this conundrum, I called Dr. Simone Brown, an associate professor of African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and the author of an amazing book called Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness. Okay, well, Simone, thank you so much for coming to talk about surveillance and how to talk about surveillance with people. Um, I guess my first question is how often you talk to your friends about surveillance and about these technologies, or do you try to avoid it in like a social conversation? I think I avoid it sometimes in social conversations, or I'm not like in teacher mode, but just will, you know, ask or just talk about the things in their lives that they're using or that is being done to them, um, like in terms of crossing borders or, you know, whether on their social media or other things that, um, you know, I think I play the long game with friends and, and, and that and hopefully they come around, you know, at some point because, you know, many people just and it's, see it as a form of convenience in their lives. So do your friends ask you for advice about surveillance technology? Do they come to you as like the expert? No. Really? I don't think so. I think I, I think I have a different type of friend group where like I don't take that stuff home. But I feel like sometimes my colleagues and students and, you know, people that I know, I think I probably have different definitions of friends. But, you know. Yeah, I feel like I get text messages from friends all the time being like, is my phone listening to me? And I'm constantly being like, well, like, yes and no, not in the way you think, but like, you know, like trying to explain it to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go to someone's house, do you notice if there is one of these sort of like always on devices? Do you notice if there's like a ring device? Are you looking for that stuff? 
Um, they're, they're in a lot of homes now. And so it's almost like an expectation for a particular class and category of people that they have things like, um, you know, Google Home or Echo. Because I think at, at some point they were like giving them away for free practically to, to, you know, to get to source data from people's homes. And so I think I see a lot of people um, with those things. And I feel like in some homes, they kind of hide it. <laughs> like it's in a corner somewhere, maybe for their own um, aesthetics, but maybe it's just that they have a certain type of um, maybe anxieties and guilt about how those things um, look. If a friend did come to you and said, like, should I buy one of these, like an Alexa or a Google Home or something like that, how would you advise them? Well, that has happened to me before. And I just say no. And what do you need it for so that you can have your playlist? You know, I think that's really, you know, the main um, thing. But oftentimes, like, they come with a product that they, you know, that they bought. And so for me, I think... It's like to tell people sometimes some spectacular story about this technology. And it's just like, you know, they are looking for, I guess they call it like the trigger word or the wake up word. And it has to listen. It has to, how is it going to understand various accents and ways of talking? There's training that's being done by the recordings in your home. And they're, they can say that they're disposed at some times or they're not checked, but you know, how many times do you get on your phone and have to say your credit number out loud, credit card number out loud or some social security number or so. And so those are things that you're relying on, not just like an AI, but like actual people that are, that are being outsourced to do this thing that, you know, people are people. You just saw recently the, the kind of breaches that were happening around Shopify and people's data. And so, and, and, you know, in terms of like credit cards and stuff. So it requires a lot of trust. So those types of stories um, are the ones that, you know, I tell. In case you missed it, in September, Shopify revealed that two employees had basically gone rogue and stolen data from about 200 merchants who used the service. And that included names, addresses, emails, and phone numbers. This is not the first time this has happened. In fact, Amazon also recently caught some employees who were taking bribes in return for helping sketchy merchants look more legit on the site. Humans, more often than not, are the weakest link in any security system. I have another friend that has like some facial recognition thing on their television, which is a kind of, you know, convenience. But it's just, it, what does it do in terms of like, well, spontaneity, you can't just walk around your house naked anymore with that thing. Like get them to think in, in those ways and maybe they can question that. They, you know, you can actually get up and, you know, turn the, the track on the CD or the record or whatever it is. Yeah. Is there a particular story that you go to that you feel like works really well? I'm secretly asking because I want to better describe to my friends why they shouldn't be buying these things. And I feel like it's hard when it's vague, right? Where you're like talking about more what feels like a vague security threat and people are kind of like, eh, I don't really care about that. But when you can tell a specific story about something that happened or can happen, that tends to work better. It feels like, do you have a specific one that you go to? Um, you know, I think for a lot of people that have things for security measures, they don't, they see themselves as the one that needs to be secured from outsiders. And so those stories about, um, you know, whether it is uh, like, package porch pirates or whatever they call them, or somebody 
uh, coming into their home, that actually is a sell for, um, and that there could be a misrecognition or whatever it is, or that this data is being fed to police stations. That's a selling point for these type of people. And so those stories, I don't know if, if once you have those things in your home, I don't think that's going to really, you know, work. I think the question is to say that there could possibly be some type of like data breaches, leakages, what happens to your information if it's like traded or stored or or whatever. But those kinds of like home at home assistance or AI assistance, I think that, you know, the stories that I could tell um, uh, probably for many people don't garner that much of like, you know, um, pull at any kind of heartstrings. And so I had gone to um, Accra, Ghana to look at the kind of um, electronic waste work that is happening um, in a space like that, where our end of life products, phones, uh, any type of consumer electronics to think about like what happens when Alexa goes to Accra. And it's really, uh, you know, the health effects of this type of dismantling are so um, brutal on the people doing the work and the people living there. But if you can't see that or you refuse to see that, like the labor and all of these things that go into you just want, you know, your convenience because you need to pull up a recipe. Who wants to get their, you know, their, their hands dirty or their cookbooks dirty? And so um, I think that, you know, some people it's going to be, um, you know, quite difficult to make those arguments, but you have to decide, you know, for yourself, like what's your political project in, 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 the, in how we consume. And I think that's where it, yeah, it's not that I want to give up on those folks, but you just have to find those stories where some kind of data has been breached, you know, and, and that they're, they're personally, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people have really, you know, deep investments in the, like, we're a nation of laws, or that they're not these really brutal and wicked ways that power gets wielded in in very asymmetrical ways. It's just like, you know, I have nothing to hide. And so, and so I, I it's almost like you cannot convince um, a certain category of consumer. I wanted to ask you about the I have nothing to hide argument, because I'm sure you hear it a lot. I also hear it where it's like, well, I'm not you know, I'm not breaking any laws, like I'm not doing anything wrong. So why should I worry? How do you try to disabuse people of that sort of like argument? I feel like I'm not really good at like snappy one liners. Like, you know, when people say I have nothing to hide or I think Edward Snowden says, well, it's like saying you have nothing to say and therefore you don't have, you know, freedom of speech or so. Or, you know, let me see your phone then or let me see inside of your fridge or your bathroom. But in some ways, like just having a conversation, um, you know, with my class, you know, via Zoom on the platform, I showed them you know, a couple things that came out just two days ago where this these kind of proctoring technologies um, where they want to make sure that the student is watching the camera, that there's no one else in the room. And there was like an image of a black woman who had to shine a light so that the facial automation technology would recognize her and not flag her as cheating. There was another woman who was, you know, in, in tears, really, you know, traumatized by the fact that as she was um, you know, typing up her questions, moving her lips, she was flagged as if she was talking to someone. And, you know, they were telling me just they just took a test where, you know, everybody's sequestered in these rooms. They have their roommates, but they could be marked as cheating because they all had the same IP address. And then one had to go outside and people were walking and all of these ways that if you even have nothing to hide, why does the university via uh, Proctor or Zoom have to have a scan of your entire room. You know, what? where's your, you, you do need to have some, um, you know, a sense of privacy. Like, you know, like I don't need to be in your home. You know? 
it's sometimes hard to bridge the gap between different threat models and different people who might have different things to worry about. And I'm curious, like, how you talk about that with people and kind of try to explain to people that just because you might not have to worry, like you may be putting other people at risk by the choices that you're making. Yes. Yeah. I think that's 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 the key question around um, consent. And, you know, that's how, you know, one of my students like, you know, convinced me to start using, well, at the time, Signal or one of those types of um, encrypted apps, because it's like you, I'm communicating with with people that might be um, undocumented or at risk in some way um, where the the things that I do that I think that aren't perhaps not necessary at the time, like talking in an unencrypted or sending message in a particular way, could reveal um, and could put them under, um, you know, harm or something uh, like that. But for me, it's kind of like I'm not really in the convincing business, you know. I think it's so, you know, urgent that we have to look at like, you know, what is really who needs the most protection from from like kinds of harms and violences that are mediated by, um, you know, these uh, technologies. Um, you know, for example, uh, we saw that uh, it was like Geophedia a couple of years ago, this kind of like um, uh, data collection by like trawling various tweets and social media um, platforms for keywords or images or anything that could then be used to criminalize um, resistance or uprising or rebellion or riots or whatever we want to, to name it. And I think that getting to know how those things are working hand in hand with policing agencies, that's kind of important as opposed to Instagram's been listening or it's like to, or to whatever I'm purchasing and I get these ads for whatever. And so I think that, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I just, I, I just focus on like the work and, you know, I'm a black studies professor. I'm, I'm thinking about surveillance through what it means to understand surveillance um, in black life and what that has to do for, um, you know, understanding surveillance in general in generally. And um, and so that's the those are the communities and the, the kind of work that I'm doing. Yeah. They don't need to be convinced. Yeah, yeah, I don't think a lot of people don't need to be, you know, convinced. (laughs) And so, yeah. Did you ever at any point in your life feel like you should be in the convincing business or were you always interested in this other, like, other way of thinking about it? I guess, yeah, like my social location growing up as like a working class kid in Toronto of immigrants, I was not going to be the business, you know what I mean? It was, I was not going to be um, like, you know, uh, part of the, the, I guess, like the ruling class, or, or I guess for a short term kind of thing. So I don't know if I, if I ever was in that, but I was always um, teaching, whether it was like, not always, I think we were all teaching in different ways, but I was like a kindergarten teacher and second grade and various things. And now I'm like teaching, you know, ad- adults and some younger and some older. Um, and so I think that I am in the convincing business, but it has to look like I'm not really doing that much, you know, convincing. I think that's how it kind of works through these kinds of like um, Socratic kind of asking questions, um, telling stories and, 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 and letting them put that, that knowledge like to work. So if in, in terms of like this question asker sort of asking like, hey, I, I go to my friend's house, I see this Alexa device can I ask my friend to turn it off? What would you say to that question? Like, is that a worthwhile conversation for two friends to have when they are in a place together or like, or is it not worth having that fight then? Or it doesn't have to be a fight, I suppose, that conversation. 
I think it's worth having it. I will say that I am not that person because I'm like, I don't even ask people to take off their shoes when they come to my home and I'll just like complain about them, you know, afterwards. So I, I don't try to get into like, I like throw down a mat, there's slippers, everything, but you know, so, but I think that if you have to have these conversations with um, friends because you, it's almost like you need to have a sign on the door saying that these premises are, are being recorded and being in that space, you consent to that. Um, and I think those are if you should have a right of refusal and ex- and that could be a really a, a moment um, of, uh, you know, having a conversation about why some people want to refuse this kind of data capture um, by whether it's, um, you know, Google or Amazon or whatever uh, else kind of technology is the thing. And so I think those those kinds of conversations are legitimate and necessary. And it might just be about asking, well, do you know what happens to that data? Um, and, you know, can I can I get access to it? Can it be played back to me? Um, those kinds of y- y- ask questions in those kind of naive and sly way, I think probably works a, a-, a lot better. I guess I- I'm curious, you know, in your thinking, because so much of these conversations around to have or to not have an Alexa position the answers or the conversation around privacy and surveillance as like consumer choices and sort of like, okay, if you choose or you do not choose, and that is the way in which some people talk about influencing policy. Do you feel as though these sorts of personal consumer choices matter at all or matter in some way, but that people should be doing other things as well? Like where, how, how important are consumer choices in the context of talking about surveillance and trying to change the conversation about surveillance? I think that like those that can choose to refuse should because it kind of, not kind of, but the more, like, I'm thinking of the example of, like, uh, direct-to-consumer um, DNA. And I know you've had Alondra Nelson on the show, um, you know, talking about, um, you know, that work and her research in, um, you know, in detail. And I think that those kinds of, like, that the buy-in that you get for consumers, there's always, like, the B-side to that of, like, how those kinds of collections are being used, you know, at the border, um, where people don't necessarily have a right of refusal or in, um, you know, uh, the Jed match or that which is now um, bought by this forensic agency or even like Parabon where they're, you know, making these mugshots, like imaginary kind of faces um, uh, there. We've talked about Parabon on Flash Forward before, but never on this show. So a quick explainer. Parabon is a DNA sequencing company that, among other things, uses DNA information to create what they call virtual mugshots of what they think a suspect might look like just based on their DNA. If that sounds not great to you, you are correct. You cannot actually really tell what someone looks like from their DNA. And so I think that once you refer if you can refuse, you refuse the normalization of these types of technologies because we have to think about like how electronic monitoring is being used as uh, you know uh, like basically quote unquote ankle ankle bracelets for people who are you know still incarcerated by these technologies. Their homes become sites or where their their bodies become basically satellites of uh, the the prison, the carceral state. And so um, those are the moments when it's important that we refuse because there's always like a policing back end in a lot of these technologies. This is the soft sell that, you know, we can have these things in our homes that, you know, play our favorite tunes or, you know, turn down the heat when we're out. But they're the way that 
Um, you know, it's all part of a large data capture, and it doesn't do any. It actually heightens the um, this like this what they call social stratification or the power imbalances or the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, all of those things that we have in society do get really heightened by it. Could be heightened by a lot of these technologies. And if a listener is interested, like maybe in resisting these sorts of technologies beyond just not buying an Alexa or not buying a Ring device, like what are some of the ways that they might try and resist, you know, maybe having conversations with their friends about these things? Like, you know, what are some of the places that they can resist that go beyond consumer choice? Yeah, I find that like the... So consumer choice is important. Talking to people is important. But the 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 way that... It's, it's like collaborative work that needs to be done around whistleblowing is so important. Um, uh, communities helping each other is so important. Like what gaps need to that are being filled by these technologies can then be filled in a more collective, uh, like humane um, type of way. And so for me, I think that it's like the work that's being done around policy with things like the ACLU and the facial recognition banning um, in, in certain cities or the Algorithmic Justice League to, to, to think about biometric technologies. Um, those, those types of, like, just kind of learning and reading and getting involved in understanding what's at stake now, but also how people have historically instrumentalized certain technologies for the goals of like liberation or anti-racism um, or, you know, or even just invention to think of new ways of, of, of living in this world. If you could have one conversation with every person in the U.S. about surveillance, what would that conversation be? You know, I think I would start with like how I start my class by putting um, the questions around surveillance that many people are thinking about now into um, to historicize it through what really is foundational in this country, which is colonialism, genocide and slavery. And to think about how those practices of and performances and policies that we um, have now at like in our current moment have histories in, um, you know, racial management uh, and uh, other other means of like upholding a state that is uh, that is a slave state or slaveholding state. And so those are the conversations. And that doesn't really perhaps sound, you know, that interesting um, to, to people, but I will, but I will, not that interesting, but for people that maybe don't necessarily, there's a lot of like not convincing. I mean, we're living in a place where the, where the, the president has said like critical race theory must be is extinguished and the 1619 project and all of those types of things. And so how I begin the class is really talking about, you know, technologies um, of, of, uh, of in, that were used in enslavement and plantation uh, logics, whether that be branding or the auction block or the slave ship, but also importantly, looking at moments of resistance and rebellion. And when that whole system became, uh, you know, upended by strategic uses of these technologies. And you have like sociologists, a uh, Christian Parenti calling the people that forged and um, and made counterfeit um, documents um, to run away to escape, like certificates of freedom as like the first hackers. And that's one way of like, you know, understanding like the uses of technology when, for example, um, Harriet Jacob, you know, escaped, but first into her grandmother's attic for like seven years, she would like use 
artfully use the postal services and write letters from where she was like in her cell in North Carolina and like to have a trusted friend um, mail them from places like Boston or New York or Canada. And that would send the slave catchers, you know, looking for her. Um, and so those are moments of like really using that. And you have like, for example, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee would make use of CB radios and these um, wide area uh, telephone service lines, like basically a 1-800 line so that they could you know, kind of circumvent the local police, the KKK or whoever would be listening in on their calls uh, to record and to monitor, um, you know, activities that were happening during Freedom Summer. And so there's always been these kind of very artful uses um, and repurposing of the very technologies of repression that people, you know, have used. And I think it's so important to like, you know, understand that surveillance is not like a post 9-11 formation or like a post 23 Edward Snowden, um, you know, revelations, but that there have been, you know, whistleblowers, um, people blowing the whistle on the state on surveillance since the inception of this country and, you know, what it was, um, you know, uh, before. And so, that to me is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the way that I would like bring those conversations. And people always want like a hope scenario, I found. And I'm not really like a hope scenario kind of person. <laughs> like I know Miriam Kappa says hope is a practice. Like you have to keep up. <laughs> so I'm trying to like, you know, have have that. But I'm, I, 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 you know, I, I, was the, I think I told you earlier that I'm not really like a feelings type of, you know, person. But I think that, that um uh, it's important to, to show people that there are moments of um, allyship, of mutual aid and of communities coming um, together um, in various formations to, to, to challenge uh, and to create new ways of being in the world and like seeing whether through like invention or innovations that there's something outside of this surveillance state um, for us and that surveillance is not just about like Instagram platforms. There are like entire carceral logics with it, too. Yeah, I, I always have to remind myself of the, the active practice of hope and that it is not just like a thing that you sort of like take a bath in or whatever. Um, we started with like, can you ask your friend to turn off their Alexa? And then, you know, is that the right question to ask is an open question in general. But like, is there anything else around sort of, you know, day to day choices that people might make around surveillance that you want people to know or that you wanted to sort of mention or talk about? I do, but I'm still like, I don't think I can convince people, you know, at all to like learn about like how these products are sourced, like what kind of energy um, and labor are these, you know, um, uh, data processing centers or, or whatever the, the kind of structures are, of surveillance um, are like those, you know, uh, Facebook having those like underwater sea cables that are destroying that environment. I think those are things that we have to users, consumers that are seeing these as just like benign or helpful technologies have to grapple with with, um, you know, their own um, complicity in all of the, the really negative outcomes of these technologies. Do we really need this this next new thing, this like Amazon drone that flies in our home or the Roomba that maps our, you know, our home or whatever, whatever it is that these kind of gadgets are not really um, going to get us where we need to be when it comes to, you know, this kind of not kind of the pandemic life that we are, um, you know, in now, which could be in perpetuity. Oh, I'm supposed to have hope. Sorry. You I'm don't have, have to hope. necessarily. You don't have to. I said, no, but it's a practice. It's a practice. I said in perpetuity and it's a practice. So yes, we're going to get through it, but, but not with Amazon drones. 
<laughs> I appreciate your commitment to, you know, stick, sticking it out. Yeah. Um, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is really interesting. And I will link everybody to your book and like all your work and stuff like that um, in all the show notes and all that good stuff. Thank you so much for having me. This was like a wonderful discussion. <laughs> Do you have a question about the future? Some conundrum you're facing now or one that you think we might face in the future? send it in. You can send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com or call 347-927-1425 and leave a message. And now a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about canyons. This episode is brought to you by Carvana. Let's say you need a new car. Well, a new used car. Uh, now this is my groove car. A U-car. Now, what if you could seal the deal and order it to your door 100% online? Buyer's remorse. No such thing. Take a week to love it or return it. Sound good? Carvana. They'll drive you happy. Availability may vary by market. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. So you've probably heard of the uncanny valley. This idea that there's an upsetting chasm between totally unbelievable humanoid robots and totally convincing ones. That there's this moment as you get closer to convincing, but not quite there yet, in which things get really creepy. What you might not know is that the evidence for the uncanny valley is kind of spotty. The phrase is widely accepted to have originated in 1970, when a roboticist named Masahiro Mori published a paper in an obscure journal called Energy. Mori's original paper was in Japanese. Its title, Bukimi no Tani, does not mean uncanny valley. A more accurate translation is valley of eeriness. The main graph in Mori's paper has been mistranslated too, leaving many people unsure what he actually meant. Mori uses the Japanese word shinwakan on the y-axis, a word that has no direct translation into English. The most common interpretation is likability, but not all translators agree about that. Other suggestions include familiarity, affinity, and comfort level. And those are all kind of different things, especially when you start to think about scientific studies that might try and prove the uncanny valley's existence. How do you measure something if you can't even name it? In fact, Maury's paper didn't actually include any measurements. It was more of an essay than a study. And there is some contention today about whether or not this phenomenon really exists the way he described it, this valley, the dip just before you get to perfection. And to just be extra pedantic, it's also not really a valley, right? If you think about it, it's more of a canyon, a steep decline in comfort, a ravine, a gorge. Here we stand on one side with our not so convincing robots and to get to the other where the totally lifelike ones stand, we must climb down into the dark depths of discomfort, unease, before we can climb back up, sweating and scrambling into the realm of true success.
I've been thinking a lot about canyons in technology lately. Metaphorically, that is. These places where there's a dark, often dangerous chasm between where we are now and where we could be. It seems like with so many technologies, there is this valley of death, this canyon between reality and possibility in which scary and terrible things happen. We stand on one side and look across to the other, where some lovely outcomes live. On the other side of the canyon, there's a world where we can use algorithms to eliminate bias in hiring or sentencing. A world where we could use AI to model our bodies and test treatments effectively. A world where we could use genetic editing to help people. We have to look through binoculars to see these outcomes, this lovely meadow on the other side of the ravine. And sometimes it's hazy, like a mirage. Some people see different things than others. But they're lovely outcomes, happy ones, useful ones. Standing on our side, here, these technologies can't do any of those things just yet. We have to get to the other side somehow. To get there, what normally happens is that companies and inventors and engineers begin to climb down, to descend into the depths of the ditch, where bias lives, where harm happens, where people are unfairly targeted and marginalized and excluded for healthcare or jobs, where eugenics happens, where police brutality happens. These companies wade through that muck and mess, the dark depths of the ravine, keeping that other side in their mind's eye. It will be worth it, they say. We'll fix all of this, iron it all out, just on the other side. Evaluating whether these canyons are worth traversing is hard. How do you weigh the pros and cons? How much damage is worth doing to get to the promised land on the other side, and who gets to decide that? Those deciding can often float above that damage and decide to do so with ease. You might also be wondering, well, wait a minute, why can't we just build a bridge? Surely there is a way to span this canyon, to get to the other side without having to go down. And it's true, but there's a catch. Bridges are expensive. They require planning and engineering and safety testing. They require permits and public engagement. And the money for all of that, the money is down inside the canyon. There is little incentive for technologists, capitalists, and their band of travelers who can see the other side so clearly in their imagination to wait, to go through the trouble of bridge building, when they know they can gather money in the ditch and come out the other side richer. And to extend this metaphor even further, along the way they will also write books about how to scale a canyon, blueprints for others to follow, guides for how to pitch a tent, how to train for the climb, how to come out alive. Those books will make money too. Nobody will ask them about all the bodies along the trail. It's possible that in some select cases, the promise of the other side really is worth the descent. But in some cases, the ascent might never be possible. Or people may get to the top only to find that it's not the idyllic future they imagined. They were wrong, or too late, or too early, 
or their attempt itself changed the outcome. Embers from their campfire at the bottom floated up and scorched the other side. So how do you decide whether to cross, whether to descend, how to do so as humanely as possible? Who gets to make these decisions? And the question I'm the most interested in is how do you build incentives to wait and to build the bridge and to cross safely and together? Advice for and from the future is written, edited, and performed by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Also Also Also, who has a new album out called The Good Grief, which you can get on Bandcamp. Thank you to Elia for the question and to Dr. Simone Brown for joining me to talk about privacy and personal choices and the future. Additional music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you want to ask a question for or from the future, send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com. And if you want to get behind the scenes stuff about this show or any of the other shows in the Flash Forward Presents network, that includes Flash Forward, Open World, and Advice, as well as some upcoming top secret experiments, you can do that by becoming a member of the Time Traveler program. Just go to ffwdpresents.com for more about that. Until next time.